Let me tell you about my Jesus is such an appropriate song because what Paul is trying to do in 2 Timothy, where we'll do this morning, is to encourage Timothy to not be ashamed to tell people about Jesus. I think we can all identify the song, that empty feeling, right? And the song explains it, the reason behind that, because shame has done its stealing. And if we're desperate enough and humble enough, we come to Jesus for our healing. In 1966, England won the World Cup. The captain, whose name was Bobby Moore, had the honor of walking up the steps of Wembley to receive the trophy from the queen herself. And you wonder, how did a captain of the team feel after that victory? Well, first of all, he was very happy that England had won, jubilant, but he was terrified that he's going to be with the queen. You see, he noticed that the queen was wearing pristine white gloves. And his hands were covered with dirt from the match. And he knew that part of the proceedings would be that he'd have to shake the hand of the queen. The queen would extend her white pristine glove to Bobby to shake his hands. So frantically, he was trying to wipe off the dirt off his hands onto his leg, onto his shorts. See, most of us have had the experience of being unclean. And there's just more than one kind of dirty. I'm wondering if we, as we begin, if you've ever done anything, something that you're really ashamed of. If you've really been embarrassed by something. If that's true of you, I'd like you to lean over to your neighbor next to you and tell them what you, what you did. No, I'm just kidding. Now, why would that be hard for most of us to do? Why couldn't you just say what you did, what happened to you? The answer is shame. Shame shows up at least four times in the passage we're going to look at this morning. There's stuff in our past that's embarrassing. To speak of those things is humiliating. We think people will think less of us. We think people will judge us harshly. Therefore, we carry shame. Now, I believe shame is the most unhealthy emotion to carry. So what if we walked into your shame this morning? And what if I showed you how to walk out of shame? Would you be game to walk out of shame? So it's very important to understand what shame is. Brene Brown has spent her professional life studying shame. She says shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of feeling deeply flawed. We are unworthy when we feel shame of love and belonging. We wonder, how could God ever love me? I am broken beyond repair. I am damaged goods. I am defective and I am dirty. I am disgusting. The truth is, I have no idea what it might be for you. That's something that makes you feel shame. It might be your little secret you keep hidden in a drawer that you never open up. It could have something to do with money. You're ashamed of how much money you spend in a certain category, right? You're ashamed of the fact you have this impulse to buy stuff. Or you're ashamed of debt you've accrued, right? Now, you won't get out of debt tomorrow if you're in debt today. But you can make your coffee at home and save $6 at Starbucks. That's a step. And it might be you're ashamed of your weight. You know, some people have a six-pack, a flat belly, and some people have a keg. 
kind of around your belly. You used to be in shape, used to run, used to work out. But, um, I mean, you won't be able to run a marathon tomorrow if you're out of shape today. But you can walk a mile today, can't you? Can you walk a mile? Maybe tomorrow you can, next week you can walk two miles, right? I mean, you're not ready for the Boston Marathon, but you can do a little something toward your health. You could be ashamed of your sexual past or present experience. Let's not talk about what happened back in high school or college. You made some decisions you regret. Maybe there was a conception involved with that or a life came out of that. Now, you don't regret the little one that was born, but back then you were making up your own rules, right? With every choice, there are certain consequences. For most of the men here, we struggle with what we see. We struggle with things like pornography. When I was just 12 years old, a neighbor boy had this stash of pornography in his, of his father's. I remember fl flipping through the glossy pages and entering a world that was unknown to us, slowly devouring the pages, feeling like we're being <laughs> shown a secret, the secret that every other person in the world knew but was kept from us. And I remember promising that we'd tell no one about our little secret. Now, I know there's deliverance from this. I am not repulsed by someone who struggles with this. But I know that God can deliver us out of. <clears throat> Maybe for you, the shame has to do with sexual abuse. It's not just our own actions that make us feel unclean. Perhaps you've been on the receiving side of human evil and has left you with a deep sense of feeling unclean. One victim I was reading this week of sexual assault, she described why she did not talk about this for many years. She said, I told no one in my mind it was not an example of male aggression used against a girl to extract sex from her. It, the rape, she said, was an example of how undesirable I was. I wasn't the kind of girl you take to a party. I wasn't the kind of girl you get to know. I wasn't the kind of girl who you respect her boundaries. I wasn't the kind of girl you marry. I was the girl you take to a deserted parking lot and try to make her give you sex. Telling somebody would not reveal what he had done. It would reveal what I believed about myself that I was not deserving of that kind of treatment. There are a lot of women who have been abused, some in this room, and never talk about it. Their boundaries were not respected. Sometimes when we're violated, what someone has done to us gets internalized. Somehow we turn against ourselves. We begin to abhor ourselves. We begin to loathe ourselves. We begin to hate ourselves. You understand the power of shame. So I want you to pay close attention to what the scripture says to you this morning. In the book of Mark, there was a man with a condition who came to Jesus, imploring him, begging him, pleading with him, kneeling beside him. And he said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, as far as we know, the condition was not the result of anything he had done, any sin he had done. The man was suffering with leprosy. Leprosy was considered highly contagious and a death sentence. It started out with blotches on the skin, with a skin rash, with lesions. 
It advanced to the extremities, began to lose their sensitivity. The body parts would fall off. The fingers and toes would fall off, eyebrows. And then the person was out, pushed outside of town, outside their families. And they announced themselves to be unclean. This leper knows that Jesus has the power to restore him. He has the power to cleanse him. Do you believe Jesus has the power to restore you? Do you believe Jesus has the power to cleanse you? When he says, if you are willing, he knows he has no right to be healed. He does not presume he deserves it. And it says in the scripture that Jesus was merciful and compassionate. He is deeply moved by this man's plight, and he's deeply moved by your condition as well. He is not indifferent to him. He's not repulsed by him. He feels his pain. He sees his shame. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus reaches out and touches the man. Maybe the first time for months, years, this man has been touched. And that's what Jesus does to those of us who are unclean. Rather than being uninterested, rather than withdrawing and with disgust, Jesus draws near to us and he touches us. Moved with pity and compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. He was made clean. Now many today live in shame. True? True? Yes, it's true. Jesus... Cleanness is more powerful than any dirt we can carry. He, there's more right in Jesus than what's wrong in us. There's more grace in Jesus than there's sin in us. The worst in us can't compete with the best in him. We can't make Jesus dirty, but he can certainly make us clean. And however deep the mess goes, his holiness goes deeper and will never exhaust the grace of God. Because of what happened to you, the spiritual enemy comes to connect what you did, what happened to you, with who you are, of how you see yourself. You say of yourself, I am defective, I am da damaged, I am broken, I am flawed, I am dirty, I am impure. The, the devil whispers to you, you're weak, you're pitiful, you're unwanted. So what happens is, what, what happens to us, what we did, gets connected to our identity, and we start living what's called a shame-based life. If you go back to the beginning, the book of Genesis, you see a powerful example there of life before shame. Don't you want to go back to life before shame? The tragedy of life after the sin. In Genesis 2.25, it says that Adam and Eve were both naked and felt no shame. Imagine having nothing to hide, having nothing to hold them down. They felt no shame. And then the tempter came, and the tempter tried to get them to disobey God, and sin entered the world. We live in a world where sin is politically incorrect, but sin, according to the Bible, is exactly correct. We have a holy, righteous God, and when we don't live up to his standards, we sin. And when they sinned, they felt deep shame. Not only did they do what was wrong, but they felt inward shame. So guilt is different than shame. Guilt is an action-based thing. Shame is an identity we take on. In guilt, 
people do something that's bad. In shame, I believe I am bad. You see, we feel guilty for what we did. We feel ashamed for who we are. So what happens in a shame-based thinking? If we are in shame, we're vulnerable to perfectionism. And I just wonder if that's you. We try to silence our shame by being perfect, having a perfect performance. We try to cover shame by knocking it out of the park. Or we're critical of ourselves if we're living in shame, and it drives us to be critical of others. People who are ashamed tend to shame others. Did you ever hear growing up, shame on you? I'm sure you did. This morning we're going to talk about getting shame off you. (laughs) Shame is kind of stuck to us, and we need to unstick it. You can be ashamed of where you grew up. You can be ashamed of the family you grew up in. You can be ashamed of what happened to you. You can be ashamed of looking at the wrong things. You can be ashamed of keeping a secret. As long as you are focused on you, you're always going to be vulnerable to shame. You're never enough. Remember God's people who were slaves down in Egypt for 400 years? Generation after generation, born into slavery. All they knew was slavery. They felt worthless, not very valuable. And then God raised up Moses, played by Charlton Heston. And God miraculously delivered his people from slavery. The tragedy was, here's the tragedy. They were outwardly free, but inwardly they still were slaves. They were out of slavery, yet slavery wasn't out of them. You see, you can be in Christ and be forgiven, but some of you are slaves to shame of something that is not true about you. And the only way I know to heal from shame is to move the focus from what you did, from what was done to you, from who you are, to who Christ is, and what he has done for you. You see, he remembers your sin no more, and he delivers us from shame. There's a beautiful verse, we'll get to our text, but there's a beautiful verse in Hebrews 12 that says, Let us run the race with endurance, with perseverance that God set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him, the joy of seeing his father again, the joy of having you in heaven, the joy of having you at the table, because of the joy awaiting him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning the shame disregarding the shame. You see, Jesus despised the shame. Jesus loathed the shame. Jesus hated the shame. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. With every fiber of his righteous being, he loathed and hated and scorned shame. God scorned the shame of the garden. He scorned the shame of David's adultery. He scorned the shame of Peter's denial, of Judas's betrayal. And God scorns the shame that crushes your soul. He despises the shame you feel from what has happened to you, of what you have done. The the hidden eating habits, the sexual sin, the deepest secrets. So with that introduction, let's turn now to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 8 and following.
It says, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it's now been revealed through been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. And that is why I'm suffering as I am. Look at verse 12. Yet I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him. I find within this text at least four references to shame. The first thing up is, do not be ashamed to testify about Jesus. You see, Jesus was arrested, and there's shame associated with his arrest. There were charges brought against Jesus, and there's shame associated with charges. And then Pilate sentenced Jesus to death, and there's shame associated with the crucifixion. And Jesus carried his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. And he hung on a criminal's cross for six hours. And for three hours, the sky went black. And darkness is always associated with judgment. The judgment that we deserve fell upon Jesus. And the wrath and judgment of God he bore. Romans and Greeks looked down upon the cross. No Roman citizen was ever crucified on a cross. In polite Roman society, you never spoke of the cross, and the cross seemed like foolishness to the Greeks. The idea of a Jewish peasant becoming a substitutionary atonement for people's sins was laughable. Educated Greeks snickered at its crudeness, but we speak of the power and the beauty of the cross. Paul is telling Timothy, my son, do not be ashamed to testify about Jesus Because when he was stripped down naked on the cross, experiencing your shame, thereby is the deliverance for your shame, you see. It's looking away from yourself to Christ who bore your shame. Furthermore, Timothy, don't be ashamed to identify yourself with me. Number two, do not be ashamed to be associated with Paul. Paul, you know, was a political prisoner. He was taken into captivity into Rome. He was viewed as an enemy of the empire and destructive to their society. It would be easy enough for Timothy to go negative on the gospel. The gospel is insulting to the pride of man. We'd like to imagine ourselves to be all wise, wise enough to solve our own problems, self-sufficient. We don't need his help. We refuse to admit we're helpless and lost. But brothers and sisters, what he's saying here is, do not... Disassociate yourself from me from the gospel. We're going to sing a little bit the song When Death Was Arrested. It goes, some of the lyrics go like this Release from my chains. I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt. He called me his friend when death was arrested and my life began. Our saviors displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose 
with our freedom in hand, and death was arrested, and my life began. He's talking here about the glory of the gospel. He's saying, Timothy, you've been set apart to live a holy life. Suffer with the power that comes from God. Holy means to be set apart, reserved for God's use. There's probably a car that you primarily use. There's probably a cup you primarily drink from. There's, primarily, there's a chair you primarily sit in. We understand that something is set apart for us. Being holy means a vessel set apart for God. And being holy has to do with wholeness. You were broken and now he has made you whole. Your old lifestyle has been broken and now you walk in holiness. Who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose, his own grace. He says here that <clears throat> there's going to be suffering in the Christian life. Rather than be ashamed of Paul's suffering, Timothy must stand tall and choose to suffer as the great apostle is. Oswald Chambers in his great book wrote, If someone chooses to suffer for suffering's sake, there's something wrong with that person. But if a person chooses to follow after God and do his will and then suffers, there's great reward for that person. Do you remember what, Paul, what God said to Saul on the road to Damascus through Ananias? This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings. I will show him how much he must suffer. It's not going to be easy, Timothy. You have a sincere faith. You have gifts that have been imparted to you. You've not been given a spirit of fear. You've given a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. You're going to encounter very tough situations. You're going to suffer. You see, the power to or ability to suffer in a godly way is rooted in God's sovereign grace. I find grace here in three different ways. Sovereign grace, first. The ability, the power to suffer in a godly way is rooted in God's sovereign grace. Secondly, there is pre-existent grace, this grace that was in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Before, God, before you ever knew God, God knew you. Before you ever loved God, God loved you. Before you ever experienced his grace, God was pouring out his grace. This visible grace, the third kind, God's sovereign pre-existent grace was visible through the appearing of Christ Jesus, through his incarnation and his death and his resurrection. Grace, the grace of God, has destroyed death. Therefore, you don't have to be afraid to die. Death has been conquered. When Jesus died, death died. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever believes in me will never die. Grace has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. That's why Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God and the salvation for all those who would believe. And of this gospel, verse 11, he says, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. A herald is somebody in a city who brings the good news, the beautiful news of the gospel was heralded by Paul. He was an apostle, one who had witnessed the risen Christ, who was sent out with a specific commission by God to lay the foundation of the church. And he was a teacher, one who outlines the great doctrines of the faith. That's why I'm suffering as I am, because of the appointment of God. 
Now, there's a lot of reasons why you can be put into jail. Trevor Reed most recently spent 985 days in a Russian detention cell. He came home to America this week. President Biden commuted the sentence of a convicted drug trafficker, Konstantin Yeroshenko. So this man, who was three years in the prison in, in, in um, Russia, has just been released. But there was going to be no release for the Apostle Paul. He was going to be executed. He was going to be martyred for his faith. And he says, of this gospel, I was appointed. Now we come to verse number 12. It says, and that's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. Now that's a verse worthy of you memorizing. But I'm not ashamed. I know whom I have believed. I'm a prisoner in Rome. I'm chained to a Roman guard. I live below ground in a dark, damp, dank prison. I've been sentenced to die. I'm awaiting the execution. I know I'm being spoken against by my critics, but I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is life-giving. The gospel breathed life into me. The gospel has changed my life. I've been transformed by this person of Jesus Christ. So why are you not ashamed, Paul? Because I know whom I have believed. I know this Jesus, this invincible, incomprehensible Jesus who came down from heaven and became one of us who entered into humanity with great humility and served us and became obedient even unto death. I know this Jesus. He has comforted me in my darkest hours. He has strengthened me in my weakness. I know this Jesus. I know whom I have believed. He does not say, I know when I believed or where I believed. He believed on Damascus Road. He does not say, I know what I believed. Paul had written 13 of the New Testament books. But he said, I know the person I have believed in. There's no wavering in my soul. There's no doubt as to who Jesus is. I have faith in the living God. My relationship with God is strong. I'm convinced. And I'm convinced he's able to guard what I've entrusted, what's been entrusted against that day. Paul knew there would be a judgment day. Paul knew that Christ himself would return. But Paul had entrusted his soul to God. That deposit would be protected right up to the end. You know, think about this. Why do you put your money in the bank? Why do you look for a... Do you put your money in the bank? Why, why, you don't put it underneath your um, mattress, do you? Like... Why would, you, why would you put your money somewhere safe? Or why would you put your money in a bank? Well, you put your money in a bank for safekeeping, right? You believe that it's, isn't, isn't it safer in the bank than it is in your pocket or in your purse or in your mattress? Charlie, what do you think? Okay. So, so Charlie does not put his money in the bank. Okay. Maybe when you have a lot of money, you don't want to put it in the bank. All right. So, so why has Paul 
entrusted his soul to God. Why would you ever commit your soul to God? Because it's safer in his hands than it is in your hands. He has made an entrustment of his soul to God, you see. There was a lot of shame in Paul's past, and he could recount to you the things he had done. But now that shame has been wiped away by the grace of God, and now he has entrusted himself to God. He says, I know whom I have believed, and I'm confident, I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I have entrusted to him against that day. You see, who you believe comes before what you believe. Why do you believe in the Scriptures? Because Jesus did. I've come to trust him. He said the Scriptures cannot be broken. Who comes before what? You get clarity as to who you believe, then you're able to settle what you believe. So let's say you hear something about somebody. Who is this being said about? What do you know about them? And then you listen to what is being said about them. You see, who comes before what? Faith involves a commitment. Sometimes I am asked hard questions like, Pastor, what do you think about divorce? Or what do you think about homosexuality? And I'll almost always say to the person, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe? Do you, do you have faith in him? And if you're convinced that Jesus is risen, then I can answer your question, right? Because you have clarity about who you believe. We can talk about what you believe. So <clears throat> Christianity involves a commitment. Are you committed to Jesus Christ? Have you committed yourself to him? He's the safest place to put your soul, to make the deposit, because I'm convinced that Jesus is risen, and I have put my eternity into his hands, my future, because it's safer in his hands than my hands. I've committed everything to him. If you have not made a commitment, you're keeping your options open. You really have not believed, right? But when you believe, you commit yourself to Jesus, because your life is better in his hands. There's one last person. His name was Onesiphorus, and he was not ashamed of Paul. He found him. He searched for him. He came to Rome. He found him there and encouraged Paul. You see, shame, <clears throat> shame gets a hold of us and seems like it won't let go. It becomes part of our identity. But when we get to know Jesus and our focus shifts from ourselves to him, of who he is, of what he has done, shame comes off of us. Would you like some shame to come off you this day? Something you're embarrassed by, humiliated by, looking back, you're not really proud of that. That's what Jesus went to the cross for. That's what Jesus delivers us from. Pray with me. Father, here we are on a Sunday morning talking about the cross talking about the resurrection, of how death died when Jesus died, that he conquered death, that death um, no longer has power over us, that we have been delivered from the power and the fear of death, that we have this great hope 
of eternity, of eternal life with you, God, of the forgiveness of our sins, but specifically, Lord, of this shame. It's said many times in this text, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Don't be ashamed of me, Paul the prisoner. Don't be ashamed of our Lord to testify. Don't be ashamed. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. And Father, we wrestle with shame. So Father, would you allow our minds to focus upon Jesus, of who he is, of what he has done, the beautiful gift he gives to us of deliverance. And deliver us, Lord, from the darkness of shame. As we partake of this bread and cup, Lord, take us deeper into the experience of being believers and finding freedom and forgiveness in Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.